grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to page uh, 810, and we find ourselves continuing in our series that we've entitled Upside Down Kingdom, uh, looking at lessons learned from the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in our second chapter, if you will, of this series. The first chapter focused in on kingdom attitudes as we studied the Beatitudes in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And now we pivot to uh, kingdom actions. And we did so last week as we learned about what it means to be salt and light in the world. And one thing that Jesus is going to teach us over these uh, many months that we'll be focusing in on the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not good enough for us just to have uh, good thoughts and and good attitudes and, and gospel attitudes, if you will. But gospel attitudes will always, listen to me, will always move to gospel action. What that means is what we believe will always lead to how we behave. And that's going to be a part of what Jesus teaches us over these next six or seven weeks as we look at different attitudes where Jesus is going to tell us, hey, your attitude may be here, but how it's going to impact you is not just in holding to, uh, if you will, the external But your attitudes are going to move you from external back towards the internal as well. And we'll be studying those as we go along. And then throughout this uh, sermon, uh, Jesus is going to share with the multitude of people that following God is not simply just adhering to the right things, but also an issue of the heart. And right when you think that it's only heart focus, he's going to then lead you to say it's not just about the heart, but it's going from the inside out as well. And so we're going to see that paradigm over and over again. And this is going to be countercultural for the people that are listening to Jesus because they have been inundated up to this point through the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, about how they need to find perfection in doing all the right things. And some of us have come to Christianity even today and we think Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts. I'm blessed if I do these things and if I don't do them, God is angry with me and I'm done. And while there's a level of truth to that, that's not the whole story. And what we're going to learn is, is that during the days of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders had created a whole litany of more uh, rules and regulations that had made following God a burden and not a joy. And Jesus wants to free us from that burden. He wants to allow us to know that his yoke that he is going to put upon us is light and it brings joy. It's not full of burden. It's not full of uh, just doing things for doing's sake, but doing so in a joyful relationship with the God who has saved us. And so this is what Jesus is going to do. And he's going to turn in our passage this morning the way people saw religion, he's going to turn it upside down. Now, I want to preface it a little bit. I didn't in the first service. I want to preface it in this one. We're going to wade through some heavy waters, some heavy theological waters. This is why we teach the Bible verse by verse. It's not a passage that I particularly want to teach. It's not something that's going to uh, uh, be something that you're going to laugh about and, and uh, go away and say, man, I really enjoyed that sermon. Man, he, he really nailed it. But what it's going to teach us is to help us understand how we're to approach God and more importantly, how we are to approach Scripture as followers of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that uh, if we don't understand how to do this, then we're going to struggle to understand the place that God's Word has in our lives. So with that, let's go ahead and stand as Christ's followers, and let's hear from our Savior, our Teacher, our Lord, and uh, we're going to find our passage on page 810, uh, verse 17. Jesus says the following, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. I have come 
I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray again. Father God, we ask a simple blessing on our time. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word, it will change us. Lord, it will make us generous with others. Lord, it will make us generous with you. Father, that it will make us holy, not only in our walk with you, but we'd be bright and shining lights to those around us. Father, I pray that as we look to your word and are changed by it, that we would be salt and light as a result of what we've been a part of. Lord, let it change our attitudes. Lord, let it move us to action so that we may glorify you and we may honor you in the process. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. We live in a day where perfection is being pursued by young and old alike. Here in America, we live by a car uh, uh, advertising tagline of Lexus cars, a relentless pursuit of perfection. And we pursue this perfection in pursuit of our outer beauty. We long to look the best that we can, not not just in the sense of uh, a level of looking your best, but wanting to pursue perfection. I read a recent newspaper article that talked about how many people, record numbers of people are running into plastic surgeons to find that perfect look. And and some of us uh, find ourselves struggling with that. Uh, Others of us are looking for perfection in relationships, especially some of our younger people who are looking for that perfect someone to spend the rest of their lives with. Well, I will tell you, I found the last one. Her name's Amanda. There's no more, so you're going to find the imperfect ones. That helps a little bit. She's probably not even in this service, but you can tell her I said that. But we look for that perfect someone to spend that perfect lifetime with. And many of us find ourselves disappointed because we've learned, and, and we'd all do this, don't we? We learn that that perfect someone that we thought was perfect after the first couple days of marriage aren't all that perfect at all. We pursue perfection with regards to our jobs, trying to find that perfect job. And, and, and if we're not in that perfect job, we're discontented. We're finding ourselves always looking for greener pastures. Even this last weekend, some of us have been scouring around looking for that perfect gift to give to that certain someone. This pursuit of perfection is a part of our lives, and, and, it, and it reminds us that we are imperfect people. If we were perfect, we wouldn't long for perfection. But because we're frail, because we have uh, faults and and these different frailties in life, we, we long for that which is perfect. Well, perfection and the pursuit of it is nothing new, except which the avenue of where perfection was found. You see, in Jesus' day, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, pursuit of perfection, in fact, a a relentless pursuit of perfection, was the name of the day in Jesus' life and ministry. You see, Jesus came upon a culture, a group of people that he was preaching to who had learned that the only way you could find being right with God was in following these rules and regulations to the utmost, hitting every one of them with utter perfection. 
And when you found yourself not hitting them, you had your Pharisees and your rabbis and the teachers of the law beating you down because you were not living it up to the potential, if you will, that they had, had reached. Now, all the while, you need to understand that when Jesus comes and teaches on this great subject matter, the God-fearing Jew knew and understood that there were 613 different laws within the Old Testament that they were called to keep. Some of them were positive affirmations, do this. Others were, don't do that. But at Jesus' time, those 613 laws had become, had grown into the thousands. And many of them had nothing to do with the law itself. But what had happened was, is the Pharisees and the chief priests and teachers of the law had built fences around those laws because they thought that it would be a terrible thing to break the law. So what we would do is we'll create all these other laws around it. So if you will, you never crash through all of those and actually break the law. It would be kind of like what you see at, at airplane uh, runways where they've got sand and all these barricades. Why do they have them? Because they don't want you to go too far off the runway. So they create these things that slow you down. Well, the Pharisees said it'd be a terrible thing to break the law of God. And so we're going to add all of these different things to keep you from actually breaking the law. And as a result, the people of Jesus' day, followers of God, found themselves burdened by the religiosity of the day. They were burdened by not following God anymore, but by following rules and their regulations. And all of these things smacked of hypocrisy and showmanship. And the rabbis would over and over again, every Saturday in temple, they would nail you to the wall. Are you doing these things? All the while forgetting that while they preached the laws of God, they never preached about God himself. And so the people of Jesus' day, Jesus says, were burdened and heavy laden. And if you remember, Jesus says, hey, put upon me my yoke, for my yoke is light. My yoke won't bear down on you and, and, and keep you from joy. And so Jesus then starts talking in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's going to articulate is going to absolutely agitate the chief leaders of the day. Because in the first 12 verses of Jesus' message, there's no mention of law. There's no mention of, well, this is, uh, Moses has told us this, and we need to do this, and not only do this, but we need to do this, that, and the other before we even get to that. And there was nothing about regulations. There was nothing, in fact, about doing, but it was more about being. And that when our attitudes were right, then our relationships would be different. And so Jesus somehow, at some moment in his message, whether he heard it publicly from the Pharisees who were in the midst of the crowd that Jesus was preaching to, or whether because Jesus is the Son of God, he simply knew their thoughts. We're not sure. We're not told that. But we know that Jesus, in essence, stops his conversation about attitudes. And notice what he says in verse 17, as if he's answering an accusation. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what we're going to get into is what theologians talk about it being the subject matter of law and gospel. 
And some of you may have heard that before. There are many books written about it. And what they're asking is, what is Jesus doing with the law? And how do we take the law and how do we live as followers of Christ under grace? How do we apply these truths? How do we apply the Old Testament scriptures to our lives? And those are some pretty heady waters, and I am going to try to, to, to skim, if you will, the top, all the while, little while, like, like good swimmers going underneath for a little while to see what's going on, and then come up and let's try to apply these things. Now, as we look at that, we need to understand that when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill it, we have to ask a question. What are the law, what is the law, and what are the prophets? What Jesus is saying in a nutshell is the following. Jesus is talking about the 39 books of our Old Testament scriptures. By the time Jesus comes onto the scene, we have the Old Testament completely in in canon form. What that means is that the Jewish scriptures were agreed upon from Genesis to Malachi as the spoken word of God through the prophets. Now, they had heard from God for 400 years, and yet there was a true understanding that what, what God was articulating to his people would be found in those words. Now, here's the problem. Most rabbis during that day hadn't been preaching the, the Old Testament all that much. They were preaching interpretations of the Old Testament. In essence, it would be like me coming up and grabbing a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and teaching you from the commentary and not teaching you from the Word of God, meaning teaching man's interpretations of God's Word instead of God's Word himself. And we are told in the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught with authority. And one of the ways that we know that Jesus taught with authority is he taught the Word of God to God's people. And what a refreshing thing that must have been to hear the word of God spoken to them so that they may live according to that and not just what their rabbis and priests told them to do. And so notice when Jesus says, if you want to pursue perfection and you want to do so with regards to the law, there are some things you need to understand. Number one, you need to understand that there is a permanence to the Old Testament. Write that down in your outlines. There's a permanence to the Old Testament. And we've got to understand that. And we've got to know what that means. As Jesus opens our study today, we need to understand that Jesus is talking about those 39 books. And what Jesus the Messiah is saying, the one whom the prophets spoke about, the one who is going to come and once and, all, once and for all deal with sin, what he says about the words that were written about him and the words that were written about us as humanity are absolutely and positively true and trustworthy. And what he articulates is, is he says, okay, I know we've been looking at attitudes, and I know I haven't mentioned law, and I know that the Pharisees are gathering their ammunition against me to say that I don't believe in the Old Testament Scriptures, but Jesus once and for all says that he believes wholeheartedly in the words of what Paul would articulate years later, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training up in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, to understand that passage, we need to understand that when the Apostle Paul teaches that, the only scripture there is, is the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to abolish that, but I will be in agreement with what my Apostle will say years later, that I, what I am teaching you comes from the Word of God, 
It is the Word of God, and it is useful in our lives. And so he wholeheartedly affirms it. Now notice, he makes his point clear that what he's trying to teach the people is that they no longer have to live under the yoke of the law. What that means is they don't have to be burdened by all of the law and its requirements, but there's a reason. And the reason is, is that the reason why Jesus doesn't have to abolish the Old Testament is because when Jesus came, he fulfilled it. And so what we need to understand is Jesus doesn't say what's written in the Old Testament is no good anymore. What we have now in the Old Testament is a fuller picture because of Christ. And so we need to be careful that as New Testament Christians, as New Testament Christians under grace, that we don't fall under the same uh, uh, thing that, the, uh, that they were accusing Jesus of, of saying, well, the Old Testament, that was for Israel because now we're the church, now we have our own testament, and that's the New Testament. And we need to be careful of those things. And so notice what Jesus does. I'm going to put it in a sentence form. What Jesus says is the Old Testament has not been abolished, but still plays an active role. It's different, and I want you to add something there. It's a different role than it did before Christ, but there's still an active role to the law, and it will be there until it's accomplished. And what Jesus is saying there, let me say this. What I am saying here, for those who uh, maybe find themselves a little more theologically astute, know that what I just said there is an absolute mouthful. Okay? And what it is saying, because there are some followers of Christ, and if you want to understand this, there's a book called The Five Views of Law and Gospel. So I'm picking one of five views that, that I believe in, what I believe the elders would affirm. And that is that the Old Testament has not been abolished. It's still an active part in our life, even in the life of the believer. And that's important because not all of evangelicalism would affirm that. And it's going to be there until the very second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand this, because this is going to form how we study our scriptures. It's going to inform how we interpret the Bible and God's calling, because here's the thing. We need to be very careful, because what we will hear, especially now with the sanctity of marriage, we will go to the Old Testament and we'll say, it is not good for one man to lie with another man as he lies with a woman. Well, we don't believe that anymore, they will say. Because we plant one type of crop next to another. We have linens that are woven of two different kinds of fabric. You've got some colorful fabric going on here. Uh, we enjoy the pork chops that we eat. Okay? So how can you affirm one thing about the law and not another? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But we need to understand the role that the law plays in response as gospel followers of Jesus Christ. And so that's why this is of critical importance for us as a church to know and understand. And so this is our template. This is what we're going to say. It's not abolished. It plays an active role, and it will play that active role until it is accomplished. Now, Jesus, when he says the following, he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to ab not abolish them, but to fulfill them. What Jesus is saying is, everything that I'm going to preach in this sermon, in fact, everything that my earthly ministry, what I say during that time, will be 100% positively in accordance with the Scriptures. It's going to be with, within the guidelines and understanding it's going to be in harmony and unity with the Old Testament. But by saying that, 
Jesus is also saying, everything you hear me say will absolutely be in disharmony and disunity to what your chief priests and rabbis say. Woo! Think about this for a moment. Think about if you were to leave this place today and to walk out into the foyer and you were to say, hey, I know you all just heard a sermon from Tim, but let me tell you the real sermon. Let me tell you he was wrong and how my interpretation is right. That's what Jesus is saying. As an upstart rabbi, new to the scene, Jesus is saying to everybody, what you have been hearing in your temples is wrong. Do you think the Pharisees got upset with that statement? I wouldn't have wanted to sit next to one of my priests during that time. Because what Jesus was saying would absolutely have agitated them. And they would have said, you're throwing it all away, Jesus. You're a false teacher. And notice Jesus is going to say, everything I say is going to be absolutely right in accordance. And notice how he does it. Look in the text as we move on. Each one of the headings we're going to address. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. Notice six times Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said. Well, who did the saying? The Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And Jesus said, you've heard them say this. But I say to you, And he begins to reorder the religion of the day into a relationship that is vibrant with a person, Jesus Christ. He's going to say it over and over again. And so here's the thing. New Testament kingdom living was not to live under the law, but to fulfill it. Just as, and hear me out, just as Christ came to fulfill the law as our Savior and King, the role that the believer has with the law is not to live under the law, but to fulfill the law in their life. And we're going to talk about how that gets fleshed out in our last point. But notice that there's something that we need to understand with regards to this. When Jesus says the law and prophets, he's not talking generically. Notice in the text, he gets incredibly specific. He says, okay... I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, what in the world does he mean by that? The iota is is signifying the smallest uh, uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The dot is the smallest, if you will, punctuation mark in uh, in the Hebrew language. Well, how many iotas and dots are there in there? Well, I did some research, and there are um, not just a few, but there's thousands. In fact, 66,420 iotas and dots in the Hebrew. And Jesus says not a single one of those is going to pass away until they are fulfilled. Now, some of them found their fulfillment in Christ in his first coming, and some will find their fulfillment in Christ at his second coming. And that's what we need to understand because there are some, and listen to me, as we look at the law, we say, well, why can we eat pork chops? But why can't we uh, do other things that the Old Testament law says? Well, there are three things. Write this down. There are three aspects of the law that we need to know and understand. Number one, there was the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was the law of worship. It was the law of of, uh, the people of Israel that God had put together. 
And what he said is, if you are going to be a worshiper of mine, this is how you're going to have to do things. I'm going to order your life of worship because I want things to be done in an orderly and right way. You just can't come into church and do whatever you want or come in, my bad, into the, into the temple of God and do whatever you want. And so there was the ceremonial law. And that told you what you could and could not do with regards to being clean and unclean. And so the book of Leviticus talks about this. Some of the ceremonial aspects of, of the law had to do with just sanitary things. And they were written in, in a day and age where, where sanitation was a, an important thing. And God says, hey, I want my people to be healthy. I don't want widespread disease to break out. And so there are raw laws that are important to the people of God in the way of sanitation, in the way of how they live in, in, in relationship to me and relationship to one another. The second one had to do with the judicial, the judicial law. And we see over and over again these laws. If someone slays someone, well, was the, the slaying done premeditated in a premeditated way? Was it done on accident? Well, if it was done in a premeditated way, their life was to be taken from them. If it wasn't done in a premeditative way, then they would experience a punishment and they would pay restitution, but they would not lose their life. And, and it helped God in, in what was the theocracy of the Jewish nation where God was their king. He told them, how they were to deal with crimes and punishment. And we see some of those still involved today in how we apply some of even the judicial law of Moses to our own legal system today. But we're not bound by that because we are no longer, if you will, under the kingdom as a nation under God, but we are a kingdom of people, of saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we see that now this is a spiritual kingdom that God is building, not just a physical kingdom uh, of the nation of Israel. The final one is the moral code or the moral law. And that is what we see in the, the Ten Commandments. And we talked about the Ten Commandments a couple summers ago, and we worked through them, and we talked about how all these still apply to us today and how we need to understand how the law has bearing in the Christian life. Now, here's the thing. You say, well, how, Tim, do you then deal with the law and grace? How do we know where the law still applies and where it doesn't? Here's the great thing. We don't just have the Old Testament, but we have the New Testament. And we need to understand this principle, that Scripture always interprets Scripture. And so we take the New Testament, which is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training unto righteousness, and we take that and we bring the two together and we ask the question, well, what about the ceremonial law? Well, the chief ceremonial law uh, for the people of the Hebrew nation of Israel was the issue of circumcision. Well, what does the New Testament say about circumcision? Well, it says it's not a cutting off of the flesh that's important anymore, but it's the circumcision of the heart. Even the prophets talked about that. Jeremiah says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh. I am going to literally circumcise the heart. And so we see that the New Testament struggles with this in the church of Acts, where they begin to ask the question, do Gentiles need to, who come to know Christ, need to uh, be circumcised? And the answer is no. This is what the prophets were talking about. I believe it's in Acts chapter 10. Peter has a vision, and a vision is of a great sheet that comes down from heaven, and it has all these unclean items on the sheet. 
And the, and, and, the, and the heavenly voice cries out to Peter and says, take, kill, and eat. And he says, how can I do these things? They are unclean. And Jesus says, no longer are these things unclean. These were for the people under the, Judea, uh, the Judaism laws and requirements. But because of Christ, those things have been fulfilled. And so here's what we know to be true. It sure does seem from the New Testament understanding of Scripture that the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ, that we no longer have to live under its regulations, that the judicial uh, uh, element of it has been fulfilled in Christ as the great lawgiver. But what we see still alive and well in the law is the moral code. And that we are called to live differently as followers of Jesus Christ. There's not one aspect of the moral code where it wasn't where Jesus says, well, you've heard it said, do not kill. But I tell you, go ahead and kill anybody you want. He doesn't say that. In fact, what he does is he not only says it's being fulfilled, but he says in its fulfillment, it's taken on even greater meaning. And so what we see in the moral code is that the moral code not only, in, in essence, was fulfilled in the, perfect, the perfection of Christ, but now Christ, because of his perfection, calls his followers not to just the outward adherence to that law, but now the inward as well. And so in many ways, the law now becomes even greater in the life of the believer than it was before. He'll say next week, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, if you have a murderous thought about your brother, if you call your brother, and this is convicting, old empty head, you are convicted of murder in the heart. He didn't diminish the law, he expanded it. And he expanded it through the heart, not through just the outward aspect of it. And so notice, what Jesus is doing is he's telling us the law has a part in our lives in a greater part than many of us even realize. Now, that then leads us to the different practices that come. And I need to get moving here. I don't want to get stuck. But we need to examine the different practices of how people look at the Old Testament. Now, there are three different ways you can look at the Old Testament, and none of them are any good. Number one, you can totally disregard it. And there were people in Jesus' day, and there are people today, who disregard the Old Testament and its teachings right out of hand. Now, who are the people of today? The people of today that disregard the teaching of the scriptures are people we, we work with. They're people that live in our neighborhood. Some of us have them as spouses. Others of us have family members who disregard the word of God. And what we do, or what they do, is they hear the word of God. They know what the word of God says, but right away they say, that's not for me. I don't need to do those things. And what they will inevitably do, and we again have seen this in the sanctity of marriage argument, is that the Bible now is outdated. It does not have bearing on our lives, and we wiggle out of having to sit under its teaching. And the Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 1.32. After telling us that the people in the world under sin are faithless, ruthless, unloving and uncaring, disobedient and rebellious, he says this. He says the reason why the wrath of God is being revealed against all sinfulness and against all sinners is because the unbeliever, verse 32, knows God's righteous decrees. 
that those who practice such things deserve to die and that they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so God has declared his word. And his word is there and people say, ah, that's fooey. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to make that a part of my life. I'm not going to allow my life to uh, be brought to bear to what scripture has to say. I know what the Bible says. I know what the decrees of God are, but I'm not going to do them. And some this morning are going through in a pharisaical way, going through the motions all the while in your heart, you are disregarding the scriptures. Beware. Beware, because the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you disregard what he says. Number two, there are Christians. So let's move from the unbeliever to the believer. There are some theologically who deny the place of the Old Testament in the believer's life. Some of you have in your hands a Schofield Study Bible. I won't ask you to raise your hands. It was the first study Bible that I ever owned. It's a wonderful uh, Bible. But with Schofield, he was a trendsetter. In 1909, Schofield was a lawyer and Bible teacher, and he talked with a friend of his who was a Bible commentary writer, and he said, hey, commentaries are great, but what I think we need to do is put the commentary, the study notes, right into the Bible. So in 1909, Cyrus Schofield presents and publishes the first study Bible. And so what would happen is, is you would have the text on the top of the page, and at the bottom of the page, you would have the notes. Now that's great, because study Bibles are wonderful, but here's the thing you need to understand. Those notes at the bottom of the page are not inspired in the errant word of God. Okay? And I've been in some small groups that, that, that people will say in there, well, this is what my study note says, and therefore that's what it means. No, that's one man's interpretation of it. And here's part of the struggle that we have with study notes is because we read these things and Schofield had a certain understanding of law and gospel that would be fleshed out because he was what was called the father of of dispensationalism. And that's another big word for some of you. And dispensationalism is a teaching or a a way of interpreting the scriptures. And I have much to respect with the realm of dispensationalism. But where dispensationalism gets it wrong is on the issue of law and gospel or law and grace. Because what Schofield would say is that because the law is contained in the Old Testament and we now have Christ, the law came through Moses, the scripture says, and grace comes through Christ. Because of that, hear me out, Schofield says the Old Testament is no longer operative in the life of the believer. It's no longer important to the life of the believer. The only thing that's important is the New Testament scriptures. And so uh, growing up, and especially amongst Bible churches, some of you grew up where you never heard uh, Old Testament teaching going on from the pulpit. Can I tell you that there are some Bible churches around that would not even teach the uh, Sermon on the Mount because it is for the Jewish people the, old, uh, the book of Matthew is for the Jewish people, and really what is being fleshed out in the Sermon on the Mount is what's going to happen in the earthly millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so I have to ask the question, if that's the case, if the millennial kingdom is where this finds itself, then why in the world does Jesus spend so much time talking about persecution? Why does he do that? 
And so I have, I, I have a problem with Schofield with regards to this because he creates a discontinuity. And so as a result of that, there are four things that take place. People see the Old Testament as outdated. They see it as strictly law, and the New Testament strictly grace. It's reduced as a, just a place where you can find moralistic stories. And as a result of that, many churches have totally and outright gotten rid of the Old Testament from their public teaching and focused in on the epistles and the church of Acts and beyond in the New Testament. This is not the case. This is not where Village Bible Church is at. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament. They play different parts. They're two sides of the same coin, but both are needed. Now follow me. There's one other one, and it's those who depend on it for righteousness. Now some people take the law and say, if you don't get the law right, if you don't do everything that it says then you're never going to make it in Christendom. You're never going to make it in God's kingdom. This was true for the Pharisees. And modern day, this is seen in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Now, everybody's saying, man, Tim's just calling everybody out today. Well, in some ways we are. It's a theological, uh, tough theological thing to talk through. Seventh-day Adventists say the way that salvation is found is in the adherence of the Old Testament law. And so they depend on the law to get them their salvation. We need to be very careful. We are not saved by works, but by grace. And so we need to understand, and some will say, well, this is, man, you're walking a fine line here. Yes, I'm walking the fine line of Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you are saved. You are saved by grace. This is not of yourselves. Whether you do everything in the law, whether you do everything you're called to by your church to do, you're not saved by that. But you're saved by the grace of Almighty God. Not by works that any of us could boast, but notice we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do what? Good works. That God has prepared for us in advance to do. Those works are seen in the Old Testament. Those works are seen in the New Testament. Works are not what save us. They are what shows us we're saved. Does that make sense? Boy, I'm doing a better job of communicating this in the second one than I did the first one. Or they had breakfast, they had turkey, and tryptophan was kicking in. Okay? So notice that then we need to understand then what is the purpose. And the purpose is threefold for the Old Testament. And it's the purpose for the unbeliever and the believer alike. Now notice what the law does. The law does three things. Number one, it guards us from sin. It guards us against sin. The ESV does a good job of translating Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. When David says that, it's the law. And so we can guard ourselves from sin by looking to the word. In Romans 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 7, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So what does the law do? The law shows me what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. It shows me so that I can guard against that, so I can know that as I pursue something, as I look to the law, I can see, is this right? Is this good? Or is it sin? Notice, once it shows us and guards us against sin, it gives us a sense of guilt. 
it gives us a sense of guilt. Amanda and I were driving home with our family uh, from Galena, Illinois last night. And if you've ever traveled Galena from here to Galena, you know that the state troopers up there, man, they're all over the place, okay? And uh, we probably saw seven or eight, especially on this Thanksgiving weekend, seven or eight police officers uh, doing their radar. Now, I wasn't driving because if I was, I probably wouldn't be here this morning. Okay, I might be incarcerated because I have a lead foot. Amanda was driving, and, and Amanda was driving within the speed limit. And when I would say, as a good pastor would, hey, there's a police officer, watch your speed. Amanda would inevitably look at what? Her speedometer. Now, Amanda knew that she was driving at an okay speed. Amanda doesn't speed. She's perfect. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I think I said that earlier. But she would inevitably, when brought before the law, even when she was adhering to the law, it pricked the question, well, let's just double check. Let's just make sure that I'm not outside of where the law wants me to be. And when we are lawbreakers, I can assure you, anytime you see someone uh, being pulled over, they're not putting up a piece of paper saying, my name is Tim Badal, and I was driving 55 miles over the speed limit. Look at me. Ha ha. No, usually their head is down. And your head goes down the moment that the man or woman comes to the door and says, uh, uh, excuse me, do you know the reason why I pulled you over? Well, yes, I know the reason why you pulled me over. I know it. I broke the law. And that's when you start the song and dance of, of being brokenhearted about it and, and giving your excuses, but the law is the law. And so what the law does for the unbeliever is it shows them their sin. And it shows them the sinfulness of their sin. That's the police officer asking the question, you know how fast you were driving? That's the second question. Do you know why I pulled you over? Yeah, I was speeding. Well, do you know how fast you were driving? Oh, boy. Yeah, I wasn't just speeding a little bit. I was speeding a lot. I really blew it. And what the law does for the unbelievers is says, you're blowing it. You're absolutely, positively blowing it. But in the life of the believer, James says, we are to look into the law intently as a mirror. And so as the believer, we get up every morning... And we look and we say, well, I need to clean this up and I need to clean that up. And, and for some of our ladies, I'll put a little makeup here and I'll cover that up and, and, and all of that. We use the mirror because we can't see ourselves without the mirror. We can forget, if we don't look into the law once in a while, what we've been saved from. And we need to recognize that we have been saved from a lot You see, when we just live in grace, we forget that the wrath of God is being revealed against all uh, all godlessness. And so the law reminds us as believers, listen up. You really had blown it, and look how matchless the grace of Jesus really is. And so that's what we need to understand. And notice, the Old Testament will always, always, always guide us to our Savior. Let me just read this and... And, and this will be uh, the, the truth that I want to gain out of it. The Old Testament, I'm sorry, John 5.39 says that the Old Testament was written telling, the prophets were telling of Jesus' coming. And if you go through Genesis, through the book of Malachi, you see Jesus. Hear me out. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. 
In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the trusted prophet. In First, Second Kings and Chronicles, he's the reigning king. In Ezra, Jesus is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, Jesus is the rebuilder of broken walls. In Esther, he's Mordecai, the savior of his people. In Job, he's the ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, Jesus is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is true wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus is the lover and true bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet over sin. In Ezekiel, he's the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the eternal husband, forever married to a backslider. In Joel, he's He's the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the great burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the savior. In Jonah, he's the great foreign missionary. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of all wrongdoing. In Habakkuk, he is the evangelist pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the Lord who is mighty to save. In Haggai, he's the restorer of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, he's the fountain open to the house of David for all sinners and who who all need cleansing. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, arising with healing in his wings. Listen to me, people of God. Jesus is the theme of every passage in the Old Testament. So what do we do with it? Let me close with this. And this is why your parking was such a difficulty, because I went long in the first service. So here's the promises that I want you to walk away from today. You and I, yes, are no longer under the law. But we are no longer under the law in the sense that we use the law as a covenant between God and our works. You see, salvation is not of the law, but of grace. It's the whole argument of the book of Galatians. And I'm not disputing that. I am adhering to that. But on the other hand, the grace found in salvation does not release us from the law's the law and the prophets being a rule of life and godliness. So I speak these three things to those who have tasted God's grace and enjoy living in a new and living covenant with God to live out even now through Christ a fulfillment of the law. And so how do you do it? Number one, you love God and you love others. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 26 through 30, we are told... That the, what commandment is most important? Jesus says there are two. To love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills all the law and the prophets. How do we fulfill the law? We recognize that God has forgiven us much and we forgive others much. We recognize that God has saved us from much and we worship him much and we proclaim it to all those who will listen. This is what it is all about. To love the Lord God means not to simply to just believe, to have a right heart attitude about God, but to live differently as in response to Him. To demonstrate the validity of our faith and the result of our belief by an all-consuming love for God and the people that He's created. There was never a time or a place in the Old Testament where God ever commanded just external obedience apart from internal motivation. 
So what Jesus says is this. If you love me, you will obey my commands. All of them. You will obey them and fulfill them. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And so love God and love others. And make that your number one pursuit in life. Number two, we are to lead others to live like Christ. Back in the text, it says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. we got a choice. We can look and we can say, okay, I'm going to teach them, but I'm going to teach them mine away. That was the Pharisees' way. You'd understand that while they heaped all these regulations on them, they literally minimized them. That's why Jesus says, you heard it said that you can't murder, but I tell you, if you even think thoughts of murder, you've murdered physically. What the Pharisees were saying no to was physical murder. What Jesus was saying was physical murder, yes, is a sin, but so is thinking murderous thoughts in your heart. He elevated that stuff. And so we need to recognize that we can't relax these things. In a postmodern world where truth is relevant, we must objectively teach the Word of God. And that means sometimes we're going to be called intolerant, sometimes we're going to be called bigots, sometimes we're going to be called all kinds of things, but understand this, we are to teach the Word of God in season and out of season. And we're to do so to honor God. And we need to be careful. How do we relax it? We do so by not teaching the hard stuff. We relax it by watering down the truth. We relax it by remaining quiet when God is calling us to speak up. So what are we to teach? It says we are to teach the commandments of God. That's the Great Commission. To go and make disciples and to teach them all that he has commanded us to do. So what are we to teach? We teach the gospel. The gospel is man has fallen. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We know this because of our conscience, and we know it because of the law. We teach what the prophets taught, and that was turn, be revived by God himself. Turn from your wicked ways and trust God as your only king, as your only shepherd. And all the while, while they were teaching that, they were proclaiming that there was one who was going to come, and he was going to save us from our sins. And so here we have... In our gospel presentation, don't just simply go to God or John 3.16. That's part of the story. But before God so loved the world, man was lost in his sin. And God over and over again came and said, turn from your wicked ways. Experience joy and abundance. Do these things. Follow my ways. And we turned and we threw our fists at God and we said, we will not do it. Well, God so loved the world. That even after all those warnings, and after all that sin had took him, taken place, Jesus, Galatians 4.4, 4, was born of a woman under the law. That he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, God's love took care of us who were under the law, so that we now might fulfill the law through Christ. And in doing so, we might experience joy unspeakable, contentment, and a peace that transcends all understanding. How do we do it? We do it by pursuing greatness in God's kingdom. He says, you want to be great? The word great there in the, in the Greek is the word mega. 
mega. You want to be mega? You want to be big poppy in the uh, kingdom of God? You should want that. You should want to be great in the kingdom of God, but you should want it for the reasons that God wants it for you. And that is one day we are going to not only love the Lord God here and love others, not only will we have the opportunity to lead others, but we have the opportunity to look to the glory of heaven that one day we will sit with God. We will sit with this Christ who took the written code in all of its regulations and nailed it to the cross and now is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the great one, and we want to be like him. So how do we do it? We do it by placing ourselves under the submission of the entirety of God's word so that he might receive honor, he might receive praise. So let me close with this. Have you found the Lord Jesus? Have you found him in the book? Have you given your life to him? He alone is the absolute standard for your life. He is the only reason that we can live righteously in him. Apart from him, you and I cannot do it. It's impossible. He alone is the one who can allow us to fulfill God's law and empower us to live the beatitude kind of life. He alone, through his word, is what empowers us to be salt and light in this world. Do you know him? And do you know his word? If you don't, Turn to him, for you will be great in his kingdom. If you don't turn to him, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And for that is a sad, sad commentary on anyone's life. Turn to Jesus. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Give your life to him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and I know we've given a lot this morning. But Lord, I pray that we would walk away knowing that we need to not only be people who believe your word, but who live out your word every day of our lives. So Lord, teach us, empower us, train us, correct us in our wrongdoing, even rebuke us, Lord, if we have done something that is not right. But Lord, remind us of your grace. Remind us that you are faithful to cover our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we will truly confess it to you. Lord, I pray that we will live in light of your grace, but we will not forget your law, for your law has been written on our hearts. Lord, teach us through it, convict us of our sin, train us in righteousness so that we might give you the glory, honor, and praise of the change that happens in our lives. Now, Lord, we go from this place, and I pray that you would lead us and empower us to live differently in light of what you've taught us. Lord, give us a great rest of the Lord's day. Now give us time now to fellowship with one another by your spirit. And all God's people said, amen.